0: K-Squid listeners, it's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. Nuclear power is being touted as a way of providing clean energy, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and paving the way to a zero-emission future. There's talk of a nuclear renaissance with small modular reactors, or SMRs, replacing the gigawatt nuclear behemoths of the past, quickly and at much lower cost. But the United States' experience with nuclear, now going back 70 years, has turned out to be much more costly than predicted. The country's 100 or so operating reactors have generated prodigious prodigious quantities of highly radioactive spent fuel, that is being stored in so-called swimming pools and caskets adjacent to the plants that produced it. Blame politics, if you will, but it remains waste. And only a month ago, a federally subsidized deal to build a cluster of six SMRs in Idaho collapsed due to cost overruns and construction delays. So is that renaissance real or just hope and hype? My guest today is Professor Alison McFarlane director of the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. Dr. McFarlane was chair of the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission from 2012 to 2014. She holds a PhD in geology from MIT, was a member of the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future, which addressed the 70-year-old challenge of radioactive waste disposal, about which she continues to write. Professor Allison McFarlane, welcome to Sustainability Now.
1: Thanks, Ronnie. Happy to be here.
0: Well, I'd like to focus on three questions today. The first one is, what is the potential role of nuclear power in the transition to a decarbonized energy future? Second, why has it been so difficult over the years to increase the commercial reactor inventory in the United States and the world? And do small modular reactors offer solution to those difficulties? And third... What about nuclear waste? So let's begin with a few basics about nuclear energy and power. How, how does a nuclear reactor work? And this is for those of our listeners who may not remember.
1: Right. So, um, or maybe they never learned. That's true uh, too, yeah. <laughs> so with a lot of electricity production, basically you're boiling water, right? To make steam, right. to turn turbines, which generates electricity. Right. So with nuclear, you're also boiling water. OK, what differs between nuclear and coal or natural gas, say, is the source of the energy to boil the water. Mm -hmm. And with nuclear, the source is uranium. OK, it's a much more concentrated source than the fossil fuel sources. so that's a, a plus. Um, but of course, as we know, it, it also has some minuses associated with it. Amongst those are cost. And we'll talk more about, uh, about cost um, this morning. But um, the rest are, uh, you know, issues of, of safety and security and that kind of thing.
0: I mean, what does the safety record of of nuclear power look like at this it's, point?
1: It's very good for the most part. Right.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You
1: know. There have been some major accidents. Of course, they are very impactful, and they've gotten a lot of attention. The most recent one being the Fukushima accident in Japan in 2011. Prior to that, the Chernobyl accident in uh, in the Ukraine in 1986, and prior to that, the Three Mile Island accident in uh, Pennsylvania in 1979.
0: Just to be just to be clear, the the Fukushima uh, catastrophe. Was not specifically due to the design of the the nuclear plant, right? It was the basically the design of the infrastructure, right?
1: It depends on how you look at it, um, but yes, you know there was a there was a massive earthquake, and therefore, and after the earthquake, there was a huge tsunami, right, which hit the Fukushima Daiichi plant uh, and on the coast of Japan, and basically drowned. It's um, backup systems, and the plant had already lost offsite power because right. of the earthquake, downing power lines, and so it it had no source of power to run the pumps to keep the the fuel cool.
0: Okay, so over the the years, there have been many different designs proposed for for nuclear power plants, but as far as I know, in most of the world, only light water reactors have been built. There have been a few experimental designs, and I guess the Chernobyl plant was a different design as well. But first of all, you know, why light water, and what is that?
1: Light water is water, the water that comes out of your tap. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in contrast with heavy water, which uses the isotope of hydrogen called deuterium, which has one neutron. Uh, compared to regular hydrogen, which doesn't have any neutrons in the um, uh, nucleus of the atoms. Um, and uh, Canada, where I am now, uh, has mostly heavy water plants. They have the CANDU designs. Um, the UK has had a number of gas-powered uh, uh, nuclear plants, not gas-powered, but ga- gas um, based nuclear plants. So there there have been some different designs out there, but most of them are what we call light water reactors, which use water, regular water, to both cool the core of the reactor, but also moderate the nuclear reaction. So slowing down those neutrons so that they are more efficient in uh, creating fissions.
0: Yeah, and that's been, a, I think, a general design feature of most reactors except for the things that the chernobyl type reactors right what is the record of other designs in terms of uh safety and impacts i'm I'm thinking here again of the chernobyl one and also of the super phoenix for example in france the 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 breeder reactor right Um, so uh the chernobyl
1: design the The main problem with that design is that it did not have what is called a containment building. So most of these light water designs, all of the ones that we have in the U S right. They have the core of the reactor contained within a um, three foot thick concrete steel reinforced structure called the containment. And so if something happens to the core, the containment theoretically provides an additional layer of protection. The Chernobyl reactor design did not have that containment. And so when there was a problem with the core and a meltdown initiated, immediately all that radiation was released to the atmosphere and the nearby area. Um, so that's the difference. Okay. Now, the... Super Phoenix and the Phoenix reactors that you refer to in France, those are called sodium-cooled fast reactors. They have no moderator. They only have a coolant, which is liquid sodium. And many countries have tried to build um, and have built different models of the um, sodium-cooled fast reactors, including the U.S. The problem is with that design, Nobody's ever been able to make it operate reliably enough so that it could be economical. And that's over 70 years of trying, m- m- over eight countries trying to do this and spending over a hundred billion dollars trying to do that.
0: Hmm. Uh, what is is the main problem? Uh, sodium leakage or or something else?
1: That's one of the main problems. Yeah. Sodium is is quite difficult to manage because it's um, on contact with air and water, highly uh, flammable and explosive.
0: Are there any other designs that have been, been tried that uh, have yep. succeeded?
1: Succeeded. Um, well,
0: let's say operated. How's that?
1: Operated. Yeah. So there's, there are high temperature gas reactors. And as I said, the UK had a number of gas reactors. Um, there are a few high temperature gas reactors that have been, you know, designed on the test level and uh, and operated, and um, you know, I'm some somewhat successfully. So we'll we'll see how the the that goes. There's the US is the only country that I know of that made a molten salt reactor design, mm-hmm. uh, Oak Ridge. Reactor experiment and um, it operated, but um, it's left a big waste mess that needs managing.
0: Hmm. Okay, the the nuclear industry and its supporters are now talking about a nuclear renaissance as an element of a transition to non carbon based electricity generation. So, what what does that mean, nuclear renaissance, and and how is that looking?
1: Well, that's the term that keeps getting pulled out when there's hope in the industry that there will be um, a a new period of building a lot of reactors and reactor construction and operation. Um, We have not seen a nuclear renaissance yet since the 1980s-ish. And it's not clear to me that we will in the future, but right now, There is a lot of excitement generated uh, in the nuclear community, in many governments um, to bring in a new type of reactor called small modular reactors. These are reactors that are uh, produce less than 300 megawatts um, of electricity generation. And so um, all the reactors that we have now pretty much everywhere that produce electricity are large. They're over 600 megawatts, often on the order of a thousand megawatts, one Mm -hmm. gigawatt. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have basically extra large only. And in the past, the reason for that has been a, a economy of scale because, you know, you need to invest in the supply chains and all of the, the bits of the reactor. And it makes more sense to do that if you're building a big reactor to generate You're, a lot of electricity, you, you only
0: need one containment vessel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, okay, go on. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, so,
1: uh, so no, that that the, So that's the yeah. the idea about the current excitement about a potential nuclear renaissance is that um, these small modular reactors could be used, especially in places where maybe they don't need as much electricity. They don't need a thousand megawatts um uh, or they could be used in sequence so you could have a, a number of you know 100 megawatt reactors put together at one site you know you could have six or something so that that's another way of of getting the electricity supply you need
0: the, the excitement is driven in this case by right the need to decarbonize our electricity supply and uh, the trade-off there seems to be, well, between renewables and batteries on the one hand, and uh, centralized, more centralized generation on the other. But there there's sort of different logics here, right? I mean, in, in the ones, on the one hand, uh, I mean, even, even 300 megawatts is a pretty big plant when you get right down to it. I mean, compared to, to two big nuclear reactors, yes, yes it's small. How many are we talking about? I mean, I looked on Google to see what the world's nuclear reactor fleet looks like, and this is what I found. As of September 2023, there were 412 opera- operable power reactors in the world. There are 60 under construction and 110 planned, and 321 more are proposed. And, and so I'm wondering you know, even if we think of only a fraction, some large fraction of necessary uh, capacity, how many reactors are we talking about? you know small nuclear reactors now, modular reactors? Have any idea
1: well the 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 small modular reactors that are being talked about really vary in size. yeah, so some have actually pushed above the three hundred megawatt number, and some are smaller than that. um and so it it I can't tell you that there's a specific number that's being talked about, but there's, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of excitement about this in general. Um, the question is whether it could actually come to pass and and contribute to the the needs that we have in terms of climate change.
0: Well, you know, in, in looking at these numbers, there's something like less than a thousand built under construction or proposed of uh, large nuclear reactors, gigawatt size. so. You know even if we imagine a doubling of that, that's quite a lot of of small modular reactors right that's that would yeah. end up being several thousand at least and and you know I don't know exactly what the the projected capacity or or might be but but it'll be a lot of a lot of these plants, so I remember that back in the early seventies, you know engineers and and so on were predicting. A 1,000 nuclear plants in the United States by 2000. We're now around 100, 110. What have been the reasons for this basically failure of growth?
1: Well, there are a number of reasons. Like any question, there's not a simple answer, Mm -hmm. right? So the multiple reasons are this. We actually didn't need as much electricity as we had thought, as people thought back then. A. B. Nuclear turns out to be pretty expensive. And it takes a long time to build. So it wasn't something where you can put it up in a year or two. And, the, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's expensive. And I think the Three Mile Island accident in 1979 also put sort of a, a pall on the industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was that that was the, you know, those are some of the main reasons. But really, I think. Overall, the big challenge for nuclear has been and will be in the future, the cost.
0: A lot of people claimed that it was it was regulate regulations, safety regulations in particular, as well as um, groups filing suits, you know lawsuits and the like, in terms of slowing down construction times. To what degree is that the case, in your view?
1: In, uh, no degree whatsoever.
0: <laughs> so. So, it's
1: the regular, regulatory piece of this is a very minor fraction of the cost, less than 10% of the overall cost. So, when you're building a new technology, when you're engineering a new technology, whether it's a bridge or a building or a nuclear reactor, you go through a, a number of standard steps. You design the thing on paper or mostly these days on a computer, and then you build a scale model. And when you build the scale model, you realize you had some things wrong mm-hmm. in your model, you know your computer model. So you fix them. And then when you scale up, then you have to go scale up to full size. When you do that, you also realize you made mistakes. and those have to be fixed, corrected. Right now, with these small modular reactors, the vast majority of them, we are only at the the paper model version, okay? So you haven't built the demonstration models, and then the the full scale models, and those it turns out for for reactors that's expensive mm-hmm. to even get mm-hmm. to the part point of building the demonstration model, and it's not expensive because of the regulator, it's just expensive to do. And as we all know, the costs of materials have gone up greatly since the pandemic, you know, with inflation, so the costs of materials are higher. You need supply chains for nuclear and and nuclear Mm -hmm. is different from natural gas, et cetera. It requires a much higher level of quality and construction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so you need people trained to actually build the quality that you need. And that can be a problem and has been uh, certainly with the new builds that have gone on in Georgia, the factory that, was set to build the modules that would be shipped to the Georgia plant, plugged in like Lego pieces. That factory consistently miswelded those modules. They would be shipped to the Georgia site and they would have to be rewelded. And it went on for years, three different owners, resulting in the bankruptcy of Westinghouse. Hmm. It's clearly not so straightforward to do this idea of factory production. And beyond the fact that you have to get the construction piece right and that that's not cheap to do, you need the supply chains, you need the fuel supplies. A lot of these new reactor designs that are being talked about use different exotic fuels that aren't being used right now. And so you'd need a whole new set of factories and supply chains established for that. So this this is a heavy lift.
0: You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest today is Professor Alison McFarlane from the University of British Columbia, who, uh, amongst other things, has written about nuclear waste and uh, served several years on the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And we've just been talking about, I guess, the logistics of reactor development and construction. And you referenced the plant in Georgia. Uh, this is, um, th- these were big plants, right? These were, not the modular ones. Um, getting back to that factory issue, I guess the, the, the idea all along has been to standardize reactor construction mm-hmm. so, that, right, so that every site would more or less be the same and you would just bring in all the parts and put it together, as you said, like, like Legos. But I also recall that what happened was that every different site usually put up sort of different kinds of obstacles and you know some of them had to do with the quality of the site some of them had to do with uh with other factors correct me if i'm wrong but you know there's this idea that you can standardize and yet when you get there you find out you know the place is different in some way or another and that ends up confounding the whole process am am i incorrect about that
1: Yeah, that this the site analysis is done fairly early on in the process. And that hasn't really, I don't think, come into play as a as a showstopper for many of the more Hmm, recent proposals. Okay, Um, You know, it, it may have played a role in the past. And I mean, many decades ago, but but it's not been a recent issue. And many of the proposals or the recent reactors have been built on already existing reactor sites. Right.
0: Sure. So sure.
1: That, that's, so, the, that's already been but, established.
0: But they still come in uh, extraordinarily expensive. I mean, can you sort of give us an idea of,
1: yeah, they're, of they're the much final more cost? Expensive. They're much more expensive than uh, than regular reactors. So the Vogel reactors in Georgia, there are two. Mm-hmm. The original cost estimate for two 1,000 megawatt reactors was um, 14 billion dollars. The current uh, estimate for these two reactors because they're not the second one hasn't come online yet, so they're not completely done, is over 35 billion dollars. So that's a lot of money for two reactors now. This is the first of a kind, and we always expect the first of a kind of these reactors to be more expensive and to take longer to build. Um, But it's still uh, way out there in terms of an outlier and is not competitive right now with uh, wind Uh, or solar.
0: Right, right. Natural gas. Somewhere I missed something. Why are these first of a kind?
1: These are the first of the... This particular design, the AP1000, uh-huh. uh, that have been built in the U.S.
0: Uh, but those are light water reactors as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so, yes. So, so fundamentally, it's the design of the system and not necessarily the and not the energy source. No. Um, yeah. So, uh, you you mentioned that some of these reactors are using exotic fuels. The small modular reactors are based on exotic fuels. What What did you mean by that?
1: So there are a few of the small modular reactors that are proposed that use light water fuel, very similar to the mm-hmm. fuel that's being used in the existing reactors. And that's like new scale um, is, is one of those designs um, that people might have heard of. But the other ones, the high temperature gas reactor, the um, the sodium cooled fast reactors, the molten salt reactors, they're all planning on using very different kinds of fuels
0: mm-hmm.
1: for which there are no fuel fabrication facilities. And not only that, but the uranium that most of them, not all of them, but most of them are planning to use is enriched much more in the isotope uranium 235 than mm-hmm. the regular light water reactor fuel that's using, that we're using now. And so That means we need a facility to enrich the uranium that much more in uh, uranium-235. And we don't have that yet. Many of these designers had initially been planning on using Russia as a source, because Russia does do this. But of course, with the war with Ukraine, everybody had to back off planning to use Russia. So now the U.S. is trying to establish its own
0: Application.
1: supply, yeah. Yeah. but, um, it becomes a chicken and egg problem to really invest in this facility. You need to be assured that you will have customers
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and the customers need to be assured that they will have uranium supply. And so it's this problem where nobody's sure about whether this is really going to happen or not.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, just, just for our listeners, uh, edification, what is the enrichment level for standard conventional light water reactors compared to these small modular 4, ones?
1: Four percent uranium-235. Okay. And you should I should also add for additional context that the uranium that you dig out of the ground has only 0.7% right. uh, uranium-235.
0: Okay. And then the 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 small modular reactors will require what?
1: some of them are up to 20%
0: uranium mm. to, and
1: they can't exceed 20% because 20% is the defining limit for highly enriched uranium which is bomb usable
0: well that's 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 interesting mm-hmm. um and and have any of these small modular designs sort of gotten beyond the the conceptual stage
1: in terms of building um
0: you know, operating a pilot or an experiment. No. Uh, no, no. So these are all still.
1: Except for one Russian one and one Chinese one.
0: Okay. Well, so that raises the issue the question of New Scale, right? Which, okay. um, can you tell us about that?
1: So, New Scale is a light water reactor design.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it's much smaller than existing light water reactors, it's supposed to be 77 megawatts, that's what the company wants to build, they actually already licensed a 50 megawatt design, but they don't want to build that one. So they're in the process of trying to get a license from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for the 77 megawatt design. And New Scale had an agreement with a a consortium of municipal utility companies in Utah and Idaho called UAMPS. Uh, to build, I think it's was six of yeah. these modules on a facility in um, in Idaho, in the state of Idaho. And this deal fell apart a few weeks ago, um, in part because the price kept increasing even before anything had been built at all. And in, in part, the price kept increasing through no fault of new scales because of the commodity prices increasing in general anyway, after Hmm. the pandemic. Right. Um, But in any case, uh, eventually the municipal utilities that were part of this consortium started to pull out and it just wasn't going to work. So, um, so again, the question comes, can this technology be cost competitive with other existing technologies,
0: and I know the United States, the government, the feds have have been providing various kinds of subsidies to various yeah. sorts of projects. Uh, you know, how much? How much is, for instance, were, were were subsidies being provided to New Scale?
1: Yes, they were. They were, and they and they've got, you know they've gotten tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't have the exact number, but in my view, to bring any of these new designs to the level of commercialization so that means building the demonstration models getting through a few first-of-a-kind facilities etc establishing the supply chains the fuel supplies etc you're looking at tens to hundreds of billions of dollars Mm -hmm. and a large part of that money because you know, private investors have been funding some of this, but they don't have tens of to hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. So the only folks that do have those kinds of sums of money are governments. And so governments would really have to decide that they are really going to spend a lot of their treasure on this one technology in particular. And it's, there's a lot of risk associated with that, right? Because you don't know that it's really going to work in any kind of timely fashion.
0: Yeah, and I guess the time frame for something like that is at least, you know, 15 years, right? Yeah. To actually get yeah. stuff going at that exactly. at that level, right? So exactly. um, it's a bit like fusion exactly. at this point, right? It's always 50 years in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to mention that th- there's a certain irony in all of this in that the first commercial light water reactor at Chippingport was, I believe, 60 megawatts. Uh, right. it, it was a submarine reactor, and so... Seems like in reinventing the wheel. Uh, I wanted to bring up another article that I that I read that Westinghouse, which you said has gone bankrupt, went bankrupt. It
1: did go bankrupt in, in you know, in 19, in 2017. I think uh-huh.
0: But it, sure. but the, of course, according to this article, it signed up its first customer for what it calls an E. Vinci micro reactor, mm-hmm. which is a five megawatt electric, 13 megawatt thermal nuclear battery. That's mm-hmm. what, what it's being called, right? It can provide process heat, electricity, process heat, and hydrogen, and run continuously for eight years without refueling, um, which certainly sounds, uh, it, there's nothing about the cost in there, of course, but uh, it certainly sounds both intriguing and a little bit alarming. And I mentioned uh, that to you that I remember nuclear powered cars from the 1960s, although I think those were supposed to be based on plutonium and not on actual. Plutonium heat. That's just for our listeners. So there are people, you know, and companies out there thinking up all kinds of interesting ideas. I would not want to be living anywhere nearby an E. Vinci microreactor in any event, uh, because it's design. I didn't understand its design either. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest today is Professor Alison McFarlane from the University of British Columbia. And we've been talking about nuclear uh, power, nuclear reactor designs, costs, and things like that. Uh, Dr. McFarlane has also written about nuclear waste. And so let's get onto that particular topic. What is it? Let's start again with definitions. What is it? What categories are there? And where are we keeping it?
1: So... There are three general categories of waste. There's low-level waste, intermediate-level waste, and high-level waste. And the high-level waste is material that you want to um, really keep far away from for a long, long time. And so the idea with that waste is it's got to be buried deep uh, underground. Intermediate-level waste is very long half-life, maybe not quite as dangerous, shall we say, as the... Uh, High-level waste also should be disposed of underground, deep underground. And then low-level waste can be disposed of at the surface. It's shorter lived. It's not as radioactive. And nuclear power plants produce all three types. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Spent fuel, the used fuel, is considered high-level waste. Okay. So where is the high-level waste in the commercial nuclear power plants, it's at the reactor site still, okay? Because we do not, in the United States, have a solution to the problem of what to do with the high-level waste. Uh, No country is now, is yet operating a solution, um, a deep geologic repository. Everybody agrees that a deep geologic repository is the right answer. Nobody's operating one. Uh, The Finns are closest. They have approved a site and they have been actively constructing a deep geologic repository. The Swedes have approved a site and they will begin constructing soon. The French have approved a site and they are in the process of licensing that site. The Canadians are down to selecting between two sites and they have said that they will make that decision next year in 2024. Japan is also Within a few years, they claim, of their siting decision. So uh, the U.S., which used to be very far ahead um, in this process, is now very far behind. Just a few more words about the waste on site. It's safe right now, right? It's in two different storage modes. All the, the light water reactors have basically deep swimming pools on site. So the spent fuel is moved out of the reactor core when it's no longer used and put in one of these 40-foot deep swimming pools where it can be kept both thermally and radioactively cool with the circulation of water. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then after five years, this spent fuel can be moved from the pool. It's cooled down enough so that it can be moved from a pool into what's called a dry cask, which is basically... You know, a concrete around the outside and steel insert usually um, where the spent fuel is just passively cooled on this on reactor sites. And mm-hmm. so most reactors in the U.S. have the um, dry cask storage as well as the spent fuel pools. There are very few that don't yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think I mentioned I wrote a book about this that was published in 1980. Right. And and. um. Uh, Just just to to repeat, it seemed as though deep, you know, geologic burial was the was the best option. But I expressed concern that until that was done, the spent fuel would be stored in. I, you know, I can't remember what they were called, but, you know, surface Mm -hmm. facilities and caskets. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that. A concern was that because it would take so long, eventually everyone would more or less forget about this and decide it's OK as is, you know, on the surface. Um, do, I mean, do you think these repositories are going to actually get built and operate successfully? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. and over what time frame at this point?
1: Well, so the Finns are supposed to be operating their repository before 2030 Yeah. in the next few years. Um, the Swedes have a bit of a longer time scale there, but they should be doing it fairly soon-ish too. Now, one thing I want to point out is that the United States is currently the only, one of the only countries, we're not the only one, but one of the only countries operating a deep geologic repository for nuclear waste. Okay. We operate the Waste Isolation Pilot Project in southeastern New Mexico. Mm -hmm for intermediate level waste produced by the nuclear weapons complex. So not for Uh intermediate level waste from uh, nuclear reactors, from commercial nuclear reactors, but from the nuclear weapons complex. And that has been in operation since 1998.
0: And how are things going there?
1: They're going fine now. Uh Uh, They did have some problems in in 2014, um, but they Uh have fixed them and uh and and things are are going smoothly
0: I'm curious has there been uh, one of the one of the big challenges as I recall was keeping water out of these repositories because um water water no has whip had no. any water problems no so the no. Sol- and
1: and water this is not correct no let me let me correct everybody okay, sure. okay. the idea of water came out because of the selection of the Yucca mountain site in Nevada, right, where it is above the water table. And so it is the only deep geologic repository site in the world that was designed to be above the water table. Every other site is designed to be below the water table. And from a technical point of view, you want it below the water table. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Why? Maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but below the water table, it is an environment without free oxygen. So you won't have basically what I'll translate as rusting of your spent fuel. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. So the spent fuel will be much more stable and will not chemically degrade in an environment without oxygen. So that's why everybody else is looking at a environment below the water table. And so this poses, and the Yucca Mountain site posed an additional technical challenge by being above the water table.
0: Okay, well, obviously I'm not up to date on this because what I remember is that everyone was trying to keep their repositories dry. It was just, (laughs) <laughs> and it <laughs> like their gunpowder right and and mostly i think it was because salt salt domes and the like were being yes. were being you know used Absolutely. for these and and um salt right. domes and So are... you
1: don't want you don't want water to enter your salt um and then in, in southern southeastern new mexico at the whip site it's not a salt dome it's bedded salt so there's yeah. no rising of the salt but they have been keeping that dry.
0: They have been keeping it dry. Why don't we talk about Yucca Mountain? Because I know, again, I, I know that the first uh, repository was supposed to be in Kansas. and and um, Salt. Huh? In Salt, <laughs> of course, in Salt. <laughs> and then I remember WIP was proposed around 19, 1980, 1979. I mean, I remember going to meetings, I think, where it, it came up. And then there was a search. For recite, and of course politics intervene in in many many of these situations. And so, what happened with Yucca Mountain? I mean, you know, it was supposedly quite promising. Um, well, so- and I, I just want to mention, right, that one of the continuing issues with with these kinds of technologies is that technologically they're not that difficult. It's it's politics that usually sends things awry. Although, as you mentioned in the case of uh of supply chains commodity chains right the costs of materials can can go up but but politics always plays a big role so maybe you could tell us the story of yucca mountain
1: yeah so uh, you know you're you're absolutely right about the politics piece of things and that technically it's not these aren't you know this is not rocket science okay And, and that's where things do go go awry so with yucca mountain the The U.S. passed in 1982 the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. Actually in 1983, but it's called the 1982 Nuclear Waste Policy Act. And they there spelled out a very fair process to find a site. They were going to actually do detailed characterizations of three sites and then pick between them. And it became clear in the 1980s that Characterizing three sites was going to be expensive. And they had uh, the Department of Energy had selected an, a number of sites. Um, they down selected two of the three. They were in uh, the Panhandle of Texas, uh, the Yucca Mountain site in Nevada, and um and in Idaho, uh, associated with the the um or Hanford, near Hanford. Um uh, in Washington state. Hmm. And so then there was a political fight, as you point out, between the congressional teams from each of these three states. Uh, the one, the team from the Senate team from Nevada was the most junior. Um, and uh, there was a renegotiation uh, and an amending of the Nuclear Waste Policy Act in 1987, where Congress basically selected the Yucca Mountain site. And the state of Nevada has ever since then referred to this as the screw Nevada act. And they have vigorously opposed this facility since 1987. And so that as Harry Reed, Senator Reed became more and more powerful in the Senate. It, it ended up with a political stalemate and Congress has not, even though Harry Reid is long gone from the Senate, Congress has not provided funding for any work at Yucca Mountain since 2010. Mm -hmm. So there's really no political will to make this happen, unfortunately, or fortunately, or whatever. So we're really at an impasse in the U.S. And there, there isn't anybody except the communities that house shutdown reactors uh, and don't really want the spent fuel there forever. Mm -hmm. Nobody else with large incentives to move things forward, right? The Department of Energy doesn't get any money for this from Congress, so they can't do anything. The um, nuclear industry is quite happy with the status quo. So they're... Mm -hmm. They're fine with things. I mean, it's it has not prevented them building new reactors, right? As we've seen, the reactors in Georgia. And, you know, there's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, unfortunately, abandoned any ability it would have to push this forward by uh, passing what they call a new rule, the Continued Storage Rule, which basically says that spent fuel will be safe indefinitely at reactors. Assuming that the institutions are there forever, right. you know, to right. ensure that right. they will be safe. Nobody, right. no mention of who is going to pay right. 100 yeah. now to store the spent fuel safely at these reactors. But anyway, um, so there's no nobody with an incentive to move forward. Sadly. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, ironically, right, if there were a thousand reactors across the country, the incentive would be much greater. And because these tend to be cited in uh areas with low population the the sort of political mobilization is is a problem did, did the nevada delegation oppose the repository on technical grounds or just uh because they were felt they were being screwed
1: i think they they just they felt that they had done enough of a um a lift for the country hosting right.
0: yeah yeah
1: weapons test site and so they didn't want the you know, they got no benefit from the electricity. There are no nuclear power plants in Nevada.
0: Right. Yeah, And
1: so they were just asking for to do the sacrifice, not for the benefit in their view. Now, I will credit Department of Energy with going out there and trying to redo the siting, because really, in, in part, the problem with the U.S. approach was that it was a decide, announce, defend approach. So big brother made this decision and will impose it on you. And if you look at the siting of these other repositories in other countries, what we've learned is that that approach is a complete fail. And so it's better to have a consent-based process where the affected communities, states are part of the discussion. It's a participatory process to find a site that they have an option to opt out and uh, and and that kind of thing. So the Department of Energy is doing some research on consent-based citing, but there's there's no teeth in that. They can't restart the, the process. We need to amend the legislation to move forward.
0: You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest today is Professor Alison McFarlane from the University of British Columbia. We're talking now about uh, spent fuel, high-level nuclear waste management and disposal, uh, about which she has written, about which I once wrote. And and we've just been talking about politics. You know, I, I seem to recall back in the late 70s that there was discussion of you know, public involvement and consensus in trying to select a site. Although I don't think it ever went anywhere. And I, and I find it difficult to imagine that one could do that in the United States and get any kind of public consensus or support for citing a high-level repository anywhere.
1: I don't agree, frankly. Tell, I mean, me, we, tell me why. If you look at the website. site... You know, as I said, it's an operating repository. It was proposed by the local people. There was opposition mm-hmm. in the state of New Mexico, but they worked hard for years, over a decade, to, you know, find what would work for the state. And they did find solutions. So yeah. from our yeah. own country, we have an example of how this works. And it means that both sides have to give. And it means that, you know, you the government has to trust the people. And the people have to trust the government. It has to go two ways. Yeah. In in the United States, we actually often only operate on, you know, requesting the people to trust the government, but the mm. government doesn't trust the people. But you you have to you have to go both ways
0: mm. mm-hmm. for things
1: to move forward.
0: Well, I guess, as they say, we shall see, right? I have a, let's go in our last few minutes, a, a slightly different direction. So you served on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for several years. And I, I'm wondering if you tell us the story of how that happened, how you got I, appointed.
1: I was asked and uh, and I said yes, because you know when you are asked to serve your country, you say yes.
0: What, but what was, I mean, you must have, uh, had particular expertise in something.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so I'm curious about that.
1: Nuclear waste disposal. So prior to my appointment as chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I was on President Obama's Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, where we developed a policy for managing the material from uh, the operation of nuclear power plants.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what was your conclusion or recommendation at the time?
1: Was that we need a geologic repository uh-huh. as possible. Um, we need a consent-based siting process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and we talked a lot about that. Um, we need consolidated, centralized interim storage for reactors that have shut down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we need to evaluate the site based on a safety case and not just a single computer model. Um, and so there were a number of, of important recommendations, which I think that the report has really stood the test of time
0: mm-hmm.
1: in 2012. And um, it's, uh, it's still a great, strong report. It really mm-hmm. is a good, good guideline for how to proceed. It's We just need the political will to make it succeed.
0: Can I, can I ask how you found service on the uh, on the nrc i mean what was uh you know just just so, so, so people have a sense of what what the nrc might right do. so the nrc
1: is the, the nuclear regulator and it not only regulates nuclear facilities like um nuclear power plants but also research reactors all nuclear materials mm-hmm. so you know when nuclear materials are used in medicine they're used in industry they're used in agriculture um, and so there are over 20,000 nuclear materials licensees that the nuclear mm-hmm. regulatory commission regulates, And of course they have a, a, a say in transportation of, of nuclear materials and mm-hmm. in um, waste disposal, although not mm-hmm. the website, they do not regulate the website that was set aside differently. So they have a big, a big mandate and they're mandate is is a really good one it's a good mission their mission is to ensure safety and security of nuclear facilities and nuclear materials
0: Mm -hmm.
1: they're an independent commission they don't Mm -hmm. report to uh anybody else they have uh they're overseen by congress but um but they're an independent agency
0: i assume that there's a, a staff that develops all kinds of, of reports and studies and recommendations. I mean, do the commissioners then basically, you know, review this stuff and, and discuss it and then decide whether to approve those or not? Is that how how that's it works?
1: In, yep, that's in part how it works. Commissioners can propose um, regulations uh, or new uh, guidelines, etc. cetera. The staff mm-hmm. can propose it. The industry proposes things and, you know, we, we listen. Um, or they listen. It's been a oh, while.
0: Yeah, it has. Well, okay, I'm afraid we're, we are out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Sustainability Now. Thank you. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org sustainabilitynow now, as well as Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make case good, your community radio station, and keep it going. And so, until next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.